Welcome to week number three in our series that we're calling uh, Family Tree, and uh, that's my name right there. We're calling it Family Tree, and uh, we've been going back through uh, Jesus' family tree, looking at some of the significant people uh, in the Bible uh, that are in his family tree and realizing they have a lot in common with us uh, as well, and all this leading up to God's perfect plan of bringing his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Before we get started, let me ask you a question. Uh, just, just go ahead and feel free to just yell it out loud. What is your favorite Christmas song? Not Christmas carol, uh, you know, like the, the hymnal church kind of thing, but Christmas song, non-Christian song. What's your favorite Christmas song? Who is it? Who, who said grandma got run over by a reindeer? Oh, that's awful. You're sitting right next to your grandmother. That's terrible. Don't do that. That's bad. That's really bad. Uh, we all have these special Christmas songs. Well, I have a particular Christmas song that's my favorite. It really has sentimental value, uh, and I'm not going to tell you what that is right now. But anyway... Um, you know, there's something about the songs of the season, the sounds of the season, the smells of the season, and, and it's upon us. We are, we are literally uh, just, just a little over a week away uh, in our Thursday services uh, for our Christmas services, two on Thursday night uh, and also three on Sunday on Christmas Eve day uh, as well. And uh, by the way, encourage you to get your tickets. They're going fast and soon those services are going to be closing down because we're at capacity. So if you haven't gotten tickets yet for you and your family and friends, please uh, do so. But I want to pick up actually where we left off last week. The first week uh, we talked about Jacob's ladder. We looked at Jacob, uh, that ancestor of Jesus's. Then last week, Rahab's rope. And I want to pick up where we left off. Uh, so if you have your Valley Christian Church app, go ahead and open that up and follow along with me. And, and while you're doing that, I want to give a shout out to our Poughkeepsie campus and also all of our online campus uh, viewers that are dropping in on us. Matthew chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. Uh, we read this last week. We we're talking about Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. Uh, and it says here, and this is from Matthew chapter 1. This is Jesus's family tree. This is his ancestry and it's our family tree as well. As Jesus Christ, we've received him as our Lord and Savior. And it says, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and that's what we talked about last week. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. Now, I, I know sometimes we read these things, and maybe I think a little bit more than, than, than maybe most people because I'm just a nerd like that, I guess. Uh, but anything seem strange there? How does David become a king? His father's not a king. His mother's not a king. How does all of us, they didn't have elections. It's not voted king. How does David become a king? Because Jesse wasn't a king. And by the way, there's no mention of David's mother's name anywhere in the Bible. There's no mention of her whatsoever, which is also very odd. How does David become a king? That's what I want us to focus in on in our time together because of all the people, all the characters, all the men and women in the Old Testament, David alone, God says about him, he's a man after my own heart. And I think there's some things that we can learn about David uh, that, that really can apply to our lives as well, especially in this Christmas season, hopefully all, all year long as well. And so how did David become royalty? Because his father Jesse wasn't, his grandfather wasn't, how did David become a king? 
Let me give you a little bit of background before we drop in uh, on the story of how it happened in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, first of all, God uh, at the time... Uh, uh, in, in the nation of Israel, in Israel's history, uh, all the other nations had kings. And, and God said to the nation of Israel, I will be your king. You don't need a king, I'll be your king. And, and after generations, they began to cry out and said, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. And David and, and God spoke to, uh, through the prophet and said, okay, uh, through the prophet Samuel, he said, you want a king? I'm going to give you a king and you're going to regret this. And so he chose Saul. Saul was this king, and he, the Bible says he was head and shoulders, literally. He was this really tall guy, you know, just an uh, uh, imposing figure. And, and he, he just was crazy. He just went nuts uh, for the people. And he was kind of like, well, see, that's what you wanted, huh? And, and he disobeyed God. And finally God said, I'm through with Saul. His, his heirs are not going to continue to be the kings. And so God speaks again to a prophet named Samuel, and he says, go, and, and I want you to go to the house of Jesse, uh, which is uh, uh, the, David's father. He says, I want you to go to the house of Jesse, and you are going to anoint one of his sons as king, because I'm done with Saul. He's finished. And that's where we're going to drop in on the story. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 6, it says, when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab. He's the oldest of Jesse's sons. Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. I, I kind of, uh, when, I, when I think about this, Samuel the prophet, and that is someone that, that God spoke on behalf, you know, through this, this man Samuel. When Samuel arrives at Jesse's house to anoint the next king, he comes up on Eliab, and I don't know, I just kind of imagine Eliab probably looked like, uh, you know, Chris Hemsworth, the, the actor who plays Thor, you know, or something like that. Like, this guy comes walking, he's like, hey there. And, and, and all of a sudden, Samuel's like, oh, this is the guy. This is, this is the next king. Man, there is no doubt about it, and we are trading up from that, you know, Saul guy. Uh, but look at what it says. It, it goes on, and it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height. So he was tall. He was this imposing person again. For I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. And watch this now. I just, I, I had this highlighted because I think it's so important. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He says, people judge by outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And, uh, so this is pretty interesting. It goes on. Let's drop down to verse 10 and it explains what happens. It says, in the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. All seven of them. And so he's got this slew of sons. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Think about it for just a minute. The handsome one. The class clown. The intelligent one. All these sons are, are paraded in front of Jesse uh, and in front of Samuel. And, and God's like, nope, 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 nope. And, and, and if you're Samuel, you're kind of going like, all right, did I, did I get the wrong Jesse? Am I in the wrong house here? What the, he's got seven sons, and God says about everyone, no. Passed over every single one, the smart one, the funny one, the popular one. And then it goes on and says, then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? Jesse answers, they're still the youngest, Jesse replied. But he's out in the fields watching sheep and goats. Now, 
there, there's a lot culturally going on here. Let me explain a little bit of it because we could, we could drill down in this for a while. Jesse had a bunch of sons, and it seemed like he owned sheep and goats as well. So he had some level of wealth, okay? Because of the sons, because he had his own sheep. But there's one son who's out and he's tending to the sheep, which was never a job of a, the owner would never tend to the sheep or his family. That was, that was the lowest occupation at the time. In fact, fast forward to when Jesus is born, the angels appear to the shepherds. They were the absolute outcast, lowest rung of the socioeconomic ladder for, for generations and generations. Same thing happening here. So much so when the prophet came to Jesse's house, he didn't even call this son in from the field. There's something about this son that he's not really the favorite in the family at all. There's some, some undercurrents, undertones about what's happening here. And he says, but there's one, he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel says. We will not sit down and eat until he arrives. He's like, I came here to do this first. We're not even having dinner. Let dinner get cold until this one other one can come. And it goes on and says, So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, This is the one. Anoint him. This is David. This is David like the runt of the family. This is David that I think you could really, it's not a stretch at all. He was kind of like the reject of the family. Because he was doing the work of a servant or a slave, not an heir to the father, Jesse. He's out in the fields. And one thing about shepherds was this. You always knew when the shepherds were coming in because the smell got there about five minutes before they did. It's smelly work. And here comes David in. And God says, he's the one. Anoint him. Because man looks on the outside. But that's not God's perspective. God sees beyond what you and I see. And we find this in the life of David. It is very interesting that this isn't necessarily an indictment against human nature. When it says God sees beyond what we see. When God says, I, I, you know, man looks at the outward appearance, I look at the heart. It's not saying man's got it all wrong. It's just saying you're limited in what you see. You're very limited. In fact, that's one of the ways we, we, we kind of just, we don't even do it intentionally, but we perceive based on how people carry themselves, based on how they speak, based on how they, they, they dress, based on, you know, all these other things, what type of person that they may be. And it's not necessarily saying it's wrong. God's just saying there's so much more. There's so much more and there's so much more that matters to me. Man judges based on the outward appearance, but God sees beyond what we see. And isn't this the truth? I mean, we do this all the time, don't we? I mean, especially in 2017, we do this all the time. 
Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. I know none of us do it. We're talking about those online campus people that do this all the time. But uh, let's show the Facebook, what Facebook, Facebook version of you. You're riding, you know, you're on a skateboard flipping, playing the guitar all at one time. You're like super dude, right? But the realistic version, you're sitting there and you got food just slobbering on your stomach and there's food on the ground and a couple bottles in and all this stuff. So there's like this perception. And why do we do these things? Because we know man looks on the outward appearance. And so we try to project the best all the time because it matters at just an intuitive level. None of us like this at all, but, but, but you get the point. God sees beyond what we see. Man judges based on the outward appearance. But here's the thing, and here's what's so important about David. God judges the heart. God judges the heart. And God, by that, he, he sees the motivation. He sees what's really driving us. He sees what the true intention is behind every action, behind every, every, every conversation behind our words, man looks at the outward appearance. And it's easy to fool men. But God looks at the heart. Seven brothers come by. Nope, nope, nope. I reject them all. Don't you have another son? Oh, yeah, that good for nothing out in the field. Bring him in. Let me see him. And when he walks in, God says, you anoint him. David, because there's something about his heart. Israel had made the mistake already with Saul of going with the king that looked like he'd be a good king. And he was a horrible king. And now God says, no, no, no. I'm going to put a man after my own heart on the throne. And so what, what was it that God saw in David's heart? Why, why did God choose David and not the other ones? What was it specifically in David that, that, that not only did God choose David to be king, he was the greatest king in the history of Israel. He started the whole monarchy. And also, God made this promise to David. He said, one is coming who will sit on your throne forever. And he was speaking of Jesus. What was this about David? Because David was not a perfect man at all. We'll see that in just a minute. But what was it about his heart that God saw? Well, I think there's four things, and I, I want to go a little bit further in David's life and, and talk about and, and look at these characteristics and these qualities of David's heart. Because, again, God said about him, not only when he anointed him as king, man looks at the outward appearance, I'm looking at the heart, David's my guy. He's got something special about his heart. But later on in the Old Testament, in another place, he actually said, David's a man after my own heart. He, in other words, God was like, David gets me. David gets me like no one else. David gets me. And so four qualities, I think, that are real important about David's heart that we understand. First of all, humility. David was incredibly humble. He was a humble man. Now think about this if you were me for just a minute, or, or if, I'm sorry, if you were David, or if I was David, I think about that. You've just been anointed the next king of Israel, by the way, in front of your older brothers. 
I have two older brothers. I would love the thrill to be anointed as king in front of them and be like, oh, yeah, oh, you got, yeah, there you go. You know, all my life, third son, I, you know, the noogies, my head is deformed uh, because of so many noogies. I got wailed on so much, beat up, you know, all, all this stuff, made fun of, all this stuff. I can't imagine having seven older brothers, seven of them. And again, well, you just go, you go take, you know, take care of the sheep. And so you've just been anointed king over Israel, the next king. And he's probably just a teenager, you know, young guy anyway. But look at him, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 17 and 18. One day, Jesse said to David, he's already been anointed king, take this basket of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and give them 10 cuts of cheese to their captain. They were in the army. They were in the army of Israel. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they're doing. In other words, he's like, Aaron, he, he, he says, David, I'm sending you on an errand. What I want you to do is go bring some bread and cheese to your older brothers who are out there fighting, really making something of themselves. You just were anointed king. You're the guy. And, and Jesse says to David, uh, go be my little errand boy. Go deliver some cheese and bread and see how your brothers are doing and report back to me. He goes on and says, so David left the sheep with another shepherd. In other words, he made sure what he was responsible for was still going to be taken care of. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gifts as Jesse had directed him to. I'm sorry. If I'm David, I'd be like, you talking to me? <laughs> did, 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 didn't you see what Samuel did? He poured that oil on my head. He rejected all those brothers, all those other sons of yours. I'm the man. But David was humble. And David makes sure he backfills his responsibility, which his father didn't even say to do that. He makes sure the sheep are taken care of. And then he goes on this errand to give some bread and some cheese to his brothers. He had a heart of humility, and he put others ahead of himself. Incredible heart. Now, if you know some about this story of David, we're not going to get into it right now, but do you, you know what happens when he gets there. He's walking up with the bread and cheese, and he hears this giant from the Philistine army taunting the army of Israel. And he's saying, send out your champion, and we'll just go mano a mano. And whoever wins, the other will have to surrender. And all of the soldiers were scared to death. And David said, who is this guy? How dare he say this against God's army? And he goes, let me take my slingshot out after that giant. And he kills Goliath. Never would have happened if he didn't have a humble heart to begin with. A humble heart. He went from literally serving cheese to his big bloodos to killing the giant, Goliath. Humility. Incredible humility. He had a heart of humility, and he put others ahead of himself. Let me ask a question. How's your heart humility? How's your heart humility? I, I've heard it said this way before, and I, I don't know if I can quote it correctly off the top of my head, but if there's any job that's too low for you, there's, you're too small to be a leader. If there's any job, no, don't you know who I am? I, 
I, I, I, I won't do that. If there's any job that's too small, then you're too small to be a leader. David was just anointed king, and he goes and serves bread and cheese to his brothers, listening to his father's instructions. Here's the second thing about David's heart that God saw in David's heart. Not only humility, but joy. Real, sincere joy. Let me give you a little bit of background about where we're going to drop in on David's life. The, the, well, let's just show it. The Ark of the Covenant. Let's just put that up. The Ark of the Covenant. You may have seen this in like Raiders of the Lost Ark. This in the Old Testament was God had Moses fashion this. And he said that his presence was there in the Ark. And they would carry this. They'd carry it into battle. And they would put it in the tabernacle, which was like the uh, portable t- temple, if you want to look at it that way. And uh, there was a time when this was actually taken by the Philistines. And then it was brought back to Israel. And, and David, more than anything, he wanted to bring it back to Jerusalem, which he made the capital of of Israel. That was King David all those thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago that, that Jerusalem was the capital uh, of the Jewish people. And, and so what happened was a very interesting story uh, that they, they swapped this from the Philistines and they put it on a uh, they put it on a little uh, a cart, I guess you'd call it, and, and they're bringing it into Israel and trying to get it to Jerusalem and it starts to move a little bit and one of the the priests he leans up and he touches the ark to steady it and God strikes him dead because no one was allowed to touch it and he strikes him dead right on the spot and David is like what why did this happen because the whole idea was like God went I don't need your help I don't need your help. I don't need any human flesh touching where my presence is. That's why these poles would be run through and it was meant to be carried, but nothing was allowed, no human was allowed to touch this. And so David is a little upset about this to say the least. And so about over a month period of time, I believe it is that the Bible says, they they kept it in someone's home. And during that time, God just blessed and blessed this person and his entire family, everyone in the family, because God's presence was in that home. It's pretty powerful picture of how oftentimes we're the recipients of blessings that is because not necessarily what we've done but because someone we're close to has done that it just blessings pour over finally David went back and he read and he realized you know what the reason why God struck that man down was because he touched this with his hand it's not supposed to be wheeled in in a cart it's supposed to be carried through these poles and so what they did was David's like, all right, we're going to do this the right way. And they put the poles through it, and they began to carry it, and they took it just a little bit, and they stopped. And David's like, I'm going to make a sacrifice to God right here, right now. Let him know how much we mean business. They sacrificed animals, and then they start the processional again to Jerusalem, and David starts dancing. Like, he is so overjoyed. He, he is filled with joy. You know, he's like, all, all of a sudden, it's like his main jam comes on. He's like, you know, he's like, Q-tip, throw it away. Q-tip, throw it away. You know, he's doing all these dances and everything. And his wife, one of his wives, would, by the way, was Saul's daughter named Michael. She looks out and she sees him dancing full of joy. And she has a very interesting perspective on what happens. Here it is. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 22. She confronts him. She says, you look like a fool in front of the entire nation. You're supposed to be the king. Talks him down. 
And he says, yes, I'm willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. He says to his wife, in essence, says, you know what? I wasn't dancing for you. I'm dancing for joy for my Lord, for God. It wasn't meant for you. And he says, you know what? I'm going to be even more undignified next time. He was a man full of joy and passion, a man of passion. Very interesting, the Bible says at the end of this, and Michael never bore children. Because God said, the line's going to end right there, Saul's daughter. He was a man full of joy and passion. Have you ever had one of those moments where like you're just in a moment and you're, you're just so overjoyed, you're like, I've got to share this. It's just like exploding, you know, on the inside. Th that has to do with my favorite song. My, my favorite song, and if you've been at Valley for any amount of time, you've heard me, I tell this story often at Christmas because it's so meaningful to me. When I was a freshman in high school, uh, freshman in college, my favorite song is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Love it. Incredible sentimental value. When I was a freshman in college, uh, I was dating another girl before Susie and I were dating, and, uh, and she played the piano. It was Christmas time, and, and we're in the cafeteria there. It's all decorated with all these beautiful lights, and it's just the two of us. And she sits down at the piano, and she says, hey, listen, I've been working on something. And she starts playing, have yourself a merry little Christmas. And it was like, I was like, that's my favorite song. I mean, it was before that. I was like, that's my favorite song. I mean, this is fantastic. I was like, I just, this is, this is too great of a moment. We can't just keep this to ourselves. So I said, hold on, I'll be right back. And I took off running and I ran into the library and, and the first, there were people all over, but the first couple that I saw, one was a, a good buddy of mine. And I said, uh, he was with his girlfriend. I was like, you two, come in here, come in here. And, and, and ran around the corner here. And I was like, let's just sing this together. And the four of us, we stood there by this piano, the three of us, and, and she was on the piano, and we're singing, Have yourself a merry little Christmas. May your heart be light. I love that line. There are times in July I've had to remind myself, Greg, let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. And, and, and you get to that part in the song, Through the years, we all will be together if the fates allow. Here's the crazy thing. My buddy that I, I, I called him in there and we're standing. He brought his girlfriend in with him and it's the four of us. His girlfriend was Susie Warner. And I've shared every Christmas with her since. How, kid, how crazy is that? I don't know what happened to him and I don't know what happened to her, but we sure enough been together ever since then. Because the next time around Christmas, we're like, do you remember? And I just had like all this joy. And that was one of my favorite Christmas memories when I ran out and got my buddy and his girlfriend Susie and we sang this song. Through the years, we all will be together if the fates, of course, we're at Bible college, if the Lord allows. So not the fate, if the Lord allows. And we've been together ever since and we always will be. And so that is one of my favorite, just like joy. So I kind of get this a little bit when it comes to David. Humility, mm, I'm still working on that. But the joy part, you, you know, the joy part is like he was just exploding. He was like, you know, he, he said to his wife, you know, she's looking down at him. And he's like, it wasn't for you. And I'm going to become even more of a fool, even more undignified for my Lord and for 
my God. And so he says, I, I'll become even more undignified. See, he had a heart of joy. And that what a joy is all about this. It's not necessarily what God has done, but it's who God is. That's where joy comes from. We of all people, David, this is, this is, you know, way up in the family tree long before Jesus came. But how about you and me? That Jesus came. And that's why we celebrate at Christmas. And it doesn't mean everything's perfect. It doesn't mean even everything's going my way right now. But we should have this something inside like keeps popping up. And it's joy. Not because even what he's done, because of who he is. And that now we have this relationship with God because Jesus Christ came. God saw that David had joy. Here's the third thing about David's heart. Not just humility, not just joy, but also he was a man of compassion. David was an incredible man of compassion. Later on, after he actually, you know, Saul didn't just disappear. Saul fought against David. There was a big power struggle, but God had anointed David. And even through the power struggle, David still honored Saul and what he did. It's a remarkable story of incredible humility. Even when he had an opportunity, different story, but he had an opportunity to surprise Saul at a vulnerable time and kill him, and Saul never would have seen him coming. And Saul didn't, and David didn't do it because of his humility. So Saul was defeated, David becomes king, and then one day, while he's king now, he's on the throne of Israel, very interested in his compassion that we see in the life of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3, he says, the king asked him, one of his servants, is there anyone still alive from Saul's family? Because even though his, he was running for his life, Saul tried to throw a spear at him one time and, and literally kill him, pin him to the wall. David had this incredible heart, this compassion. And he says, is anyone alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. And if you were here last week, we talked about this word in Hebrew, chased. That David literally says, I want to show covenant, unconditional love, protection, and provision for any of Saul's family that's still alive. This would be the enemy. This is like the arch enemy. Like, why would he do this? He was a man of compassion. And Ziba then replied, the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan, this is Saul's son, Jonathan. One of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both his feet. Jonathan and David were best friends. Jonathan was Saul's son, who should have been the heir. But they had this incredible friendship. To the point that Jonathan actually said to David at one point, he goes, I know you're supposed to be the king, not me. In the story as we read in the Old Testament, Jonathan ended up being killed alongside of Saul. But he had this son. And his son's name was kind of hard to pronounce, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. And he was crippled. And the servant, Ziba, tells him, Jonathan's son is still alive. He's crippled in both his feet. Now, if, if you watch any of these like uh, medieval movies or anything like this, you're, you're thinking, aren't you? David's going to call him in. David's going to kill this guy because he's an heir. He, he's a living heir to Saul. But that's not what happens at all. 
He had a kindness. He wanted to show him kindness. The God's chased to him. And so it goes on and it says, don't be afraid as, as Mephibosheth is brought to him. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. To this vulnerable, paraplegic heir to the former king, the heir to the throne. And he showed him compassion. And not only that, he did not only give him property, he goes, you're going to eat with me here at this table every night. Mephibosheth. This man had an incredible heart. Humility, joy, compassion. The heart of David. He made space for those who are the most vulnerable around him. Like Mephibosheth. God said he's, got, he's a man after my own heart. Humility, joy and compassion. This is one of the things that I love about Valley Christian Church, that we're a compassionate people. And we show that in a number of different ways, this time of year, but all year round. Uh, partnerships that we have with, with Bread of Life down in Poughkeepsie, of feeding uh, uh, people down in the inner city of Poughkeepsie with the Hoving Home, with, with Unshattered, uh, with Sparrow's Nest, all these compassionate ways of reaching people and impacting people's lives. And that's what God wants us to be, people of compassion. Humble, joyful, compassionate. David's incredible heart. And then here's the fourth thing about David. His heart of humility, his heart of joy, his heart of compassion. And then there's this one, his heart of repentance his heart of repentance. Being a man after God's own heart didn't mean that David was a perfect man. In fact, he, like a lot of men, had a major struggle in his life, and that was lust. In fact, the Bible says that it's pretty interesting when you read the story of David. It was the time when the kings would go to war. It was like springtime, and they would, armies against armies, and the king would lead them into battle. But David instead sent the captain of the army, and he stayed at home. I, I, this first time I read that, I remember it struck me one time in this, this statement, these two questions. Uh, and, and I've preached on this many times, but I, I just throw it in here just to help out as well. Used to tell our kids all the time when they're growing up in the house, are you where you're supposed to be and are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? If you can say yes to those two questions, you... It would keep you from like 95% of trouble in this world. Are you where you're supposed to be? And are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? And, and the whole chapter that talks about this incredible sin that David committed, it says, it was the time when the kings would go off to war, but David stayed at home. And one day he's out on the palace porch and he overlooks, uh, that overlooks the city of Jerusalem and he saw a woman bathing on the rooftop where they would do that. And her name was Bathsheba. And he caught her, uh, she caught his eye and he had the servant he said who is that and he said well that, that that's Bathsheba down there her son is is Uriah and, and he said he's a loyal man to you he's in your army he's loyal fiercely loyal to you and he said have her come to the palace for dinner he's already married and David wined and dined her and then 
invited, him, invited her to his bedroom and committed adultery with him. He was not where he was supposed to be, and he was not doing what he was supposed to be doing. Her husband's out to war. Later she comes to him and says, David, I'm pregnant. Now he's got a real problem. <laughs> First the adultery, now the pregnancy. And so David, even then, kind of scheming, he calls Uriah back from, from, from the war. And he says, listen, why don't you go home, just spend a, few, spend a few nights with your wife, hoping no one could be blamed for this pregnancy except the right husband. But Uriah was such a faithful man, he said, I can't do it. Not when my brothers are on the, the front lines. I, I can't, how can I go home and sleep with my wife? And so David's like, really? You need to do this? And Uriah just wouldn't do it. And so then David, think about this for a minute. It's an incredible story. David writes on a piece of paper, and he hands it to Uriah, and he seals it with the king's seal. And he says, give this to the captain named Joab, the captain of my armies. And Uriah says, absolutely, king. I live to serve you. And he hands it to Joab. When he gets back to the front lines, Joab pops it open, and David commanded Joab, Make sure when the battle is at its worst part, you have all of our armies retreat so that Uriah is struck dead by himself. Had him murdered on the battlefield. David. Powerful story here. And so, the time came when he was confronted by a different prophet, this time the prophet Nathan, because of his sin with Bathsheba was the woman's name. Nathan comes in and speaks on behalf of God and confronts David, and David realizes the sin that he's committed and how bad it was, not only adultery, but then murder as well. And David repented. There's two parts to real repentance, and a lot of times we just don't get this right. True repentance, biblically speaking, there's two parts of repentance. First of all, you take responsibility. You take responsibility for what you've done. And, and this is what David does, and we'll read it in just a minute. He takes responsibility. He's like, I did this. This wasn't because some some pressure, the, you know, peer pressure. This wasn't, I, I'm not blaming my dad. I'm not blaming anybody else, culture or society. I did this. That's the first step in repentance, is taking responsibility. In other words, owning it. And then the second one, though, is, is something that generally we don't do often, and that's why then real change doesn't come about. First of all, take responsibility. The second part of repentance is to seek restoration. In other words, realizing every time we sin, it hurts at least two people. Probably, well, let me say, it hurts three people. Every time you and I commit any sin, first of all, it hurts God because we're his children. We, we, we have confessed uh, Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We look to him. We look to the power of the Holy Spirit that we live the way we should. And so the, every time that you and I sin, we hurt God. Second, we hurt someone else. Sin never just is just about, it, it hurts someone else as well. And the third, we hurt ourselves. We hurt ourselves. And, and so in that relationship, we've hurt someone else. We've hurt God. We've hurt someone else and ourselves. Not only take responsibility, but we have to seek restoration because sin always causes collateral damage. And David understood this. And so two parts to repentance, take responsibility and seek restoration. 
And David, when he's confronted by the prophet, it's so awesome that we actually have recorded what his words were. And it's in the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. And I just encourage you, read it, read it in its entirety sometime. Uh, because it's very insightful about the heart of how his heart is breaking when he realizes what he's done. And he takes responsibility and he seeks restoration in that whole psalm. But look at what it says in Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, he's speaking to God. Against you and you alone have I sinned. First thing David realized, he takes responsibility. He's like, my sin hurt your heart, God. What my actions hurt your heart. It hurt our relationship, God. And, and we'd say, well, I, I thought he sinned against Uriah. He starts where it really starts. Against you and you alone have I sinned. And I have done what is evil in your sight. Because God looks at the heart. And David understood it. Against you and you alone have I sinned, and I've done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. David says, what you say is wrong is wrong. Not what I say. Not what anyone else says. Your judgment is just. When you say it's sin, it's sin, God. You're the one who defines it. And so he comes and he owns that. And he takes responsibility for it. So often when God puts a spotlight in our lives, we want to blame someone else. We want to make excuses. And David was a king. He could have powered up under Nathan, Nathan and say, do you know who you're talking to? Off with his head. Boom. And he would have been killed on the spot. So many times when we're, God shines a spotlight into our heart and things that are really going on there, all the excuses, all the finger pointing, we power up. But David says, you're right. You're absolutely right, God. I sinned against you. He doesn't even mention Uriah. He says, I sinned against you. God, you're right, and I'm going to turn back to you. Look at verse 12 of Psalm 50, 51. This is David's cry. Restore to me, and here it is, the joy of my salvation. David recognized something. Sin steals from us. And you know one of the main things it steals? Our joy. David says, restore to me that joy. Restore to me that joy. Like when I danced in front of your tabernacle. When I danced in front of the Ark of the Covenant when it was coming back. That I didn't care. I, I didn't care if my wife, Michael, thought I was a fool. I was going to be even more foolish. Restore to me, God, that joy from just a full heart open to you and serving you. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And watch this now. This is so cool. The restoration part. And make me willing to obey you again. He said, God, I repent. put it this way before, and I, I, it's, I think it's so applicable to this moment. There is no feeling in this world like clean. Like clean. Like knowing I'm clean before God. I'm clean. There, there's no greater joy. That, 
My sins are forgiven. And God, I'm following the way you want me to. I'm living the life that you want me to. There's no greater joy than that. David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation and make me willing to obey you again. Because he recognized sin every time turns our heart away from God. And so he takes responsibility and he seeks restoration. See, we don't just cultivate joy in times of worship. We also cultivate joy in times of repentance. And David understood that. And he says, I repent, restore to me the joy of my salvation as I turn and I repent. And God did just that. See, having a heart after God is having a heart that's soft, that's tender, and that's teachable and turns back to him whenever we recognize or the Holy Spirit convicts us that we're walking away. David was a shepherd boy and he became king. And a baby in a manger, Jesus Christ was the king of kings. So many people missed it. David's own father, Jesse, don't even worry with David. It's one of my other brothers, one of my other sons. Totally missed it, looking at the outward appearance. This Christmas that's so shortly upon us, we need to begin to see how God sees the heart. And the number one place that we need to start looking is our own hearts. The prophet didn't see the king in Jesse's home. And a thousand years later, people didn't see the king of kings in a manger. Because all they were concerned about was the outward appearance. And if I could, if I could leave you with this one thought, based on David's heart, a heart of humility, a heart of joy, a heart of compassion, a heart of repentance. This is what I'd encourage you with this Christmas. Don't miss seeing the king this Christmas. And all the tinsel and all the lights and all the shopping lists and all the events and all those things, don't miss the king when we're so busy doing all the stuff because he's here and he loves you and he gave everything for you. Don't forget about the king in the midst of all the madness. Don't miss seeing the king this Christmas. Jesse didn't realize there was a king living in his house. I think the owner of the inn, and there's no room for him at the inn, said, well, I got a manger down there. I, I got a barn. He didn't realize there was a king was about to be born. Don't miss the king this Christmas. Let's learn from this incredible heart that David had. And let's pray and ask God, God, change my heart to be that same kind of heart. Heart of humility, heart of joy, heart of compassion, and a heart of repentance. Would you bow your heads with me right now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you, Father, for family trees. 
Thank you for this family tree recorded for us in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus' family tree. And, and Lord, there's so much that we can learn from each one of these members in Jesus' family tree and our spiritual tree. Lord, in this Christmas, as we're, we're approaching and the days are just counting down and we're getting so close, God, I'm just so aware that you, you want to do something in our hearts as your, as your followers this Christmas. God, help us to see your Son, our Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords this Christmas. May our hearts be open to him and all that he wants to do in our hearts to, to transform our hearts into hearts of humility, hearts of joy, hearts of compassion. And Lord, when, when you do speak to us about things that are going on in our hearts, Lord, that we would be also, we would have hearts of repentance. Father, thank you that you love us enough not to leave us the way that we are. But your desire is that we become more like Jesus' character. And if I could even say, like the heart that David had, that we would be people after your own heart. Thank you, Father. Right now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to give opportunity. If you're here right now in the hearing of my voice, and you've never taken that step to put your, your life in the hands of Jesus Christ and receiving him as your Lord and Savior, what a great opportunity to do it during this Christmas season. The Bible makes it clear that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's why Jesus came. He came to pay the price for your personal sins, for, for my personal sins, for our personal sins. Through his sinless life and his sacrificial death and his resurrection from the dead three days later. And so if you've never prayed and invited Jesus Christ into your heart and, and really turned from your sins and received his sacrifice for you, I want to lead you in a simple prayer right now that you can repeat after me and, and open your heart to him right now in this moment and you will be saved, just as the Bible says, a fresh start. Just repeat this prayer after me. Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. I receive Jesus' sacrifice for me. I turn from my sins right now. And I trust in your sacrifice, Jesus. Thank you for living and dying and rising from the dead for me. And Jesus, I ask you to lead me now. Guide me. Direct me from this day forward. And I will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Valley Christian Church located in Hopewell Junction, New York. Please visit us online at valleychristianchurch.net for more information. Thank you.